0: You're listening to an episode from Tales from the First Tee. I'm your host, Rich Easton, telling tales from beautiful Charleston, South Carolina. This week I'll share my thoughts on Sunday's Super Bowl. The WM Phoenix Open. Losing and winning golf bets. Who's more gracious when two people get to the same place in line and one person has to allow another person to go first? But first, a segment I call This Week in the News or Is It Just Noise? First in the news, the Olympics. I forget how much I enjoyed the Olympics until they're front and center. This year, there was lots of diplomacy duplicity that ended up with China and Russia playing footsie under the table. Apparently on the world stage, it's important for some countries to weigh in on how other countries are behaving leading up to the Olympic competition. Boycotting and banning athletes are the punishments. This year, 10 countries joined the United States declaring diplomatic boycotts because of China's human rights abuses and atrocities in Xinjiang against the Muslim population where they placed them in re-education camps. What a name. With COVID protocols in place, venues were 80% empty. Diplomats from the boycotting countries weren't going to fill up the seats, nor were they going to influence the feats of brilliance from the country's athletes. So, their display of solidarity against China gave them something to talk about in their home countries. It reduced their travel budgets, and in my opinion, has had little impact on changing China's human rights practices. But, like the Zen master once said, we'll see. Russia was banned uh, because of a state sponsored doping scheme. However, individual athletes from Russia have been allowed to compete under the ROC banner, Russia Olympic Committee. If a Russian athlete wins a gold medal, the Russian anthem couldn't be played. So, you might have heard something like this. Which I think translates to have another glass of vodka, but my Russian is very uh, rusty, let's say. I happen to like watching ski jumping, free ski, and snowboarding. Did you see that five women ski jumpers from four different teams were disqualified for wearing loose-fitting suits? Now, we see the same thing here in the United States, particularly at places like Hooters, Tilted Kilt, Dirty Dog Saloon, and twin pinks. Many women were sent home because of failing to adhere to the dress codes. And I have to believe that that has since ended since some of our friends with telephone numbers ending in all sevens, eights, and nines got involved. I was thoroughly impressed with Eileen Wu, who grew up in San Francisco and competed for China in the free ski. And the free ski is basically a jump. Where you're either going down this ramp forwards or backwards, and doing as many flips and rotations, and then you have to land it coming down the hill. So, um, coming into her third jump, she was actually in second place behind Tesla Du from France, and she had to pull off the best jump of the weekend. She did it. She went backwards. She flew off the ramp and did a four and a half rotation and landed perfectly backwards on the way down. She knew it. You could tell when athletes know that they've done something that's really hard for them to do or something they've been practicing and have failed quite often, but this time in front of the world and when it made sense, they nailed it. So she gets done, she gets the gold. You could tell how excited she was and I feel sorry for Tesla do because she really thought she had the gold. I mean, she pulled off an incredible jump. So now, so now Eileen Wu gets the gold and now she is sitting at the table with the media and they start peppering her with questions about her nationality. Now, these athletes have been in China for a while practicing for their events and the media has had access to them even before. So you would have thought that the questions of her nationality had already been raised and put to bed before her events started. But, you know, the media, they're just looking for that soundbite. They're looking for that aha moment. But Eileen handled the media like a champ.
1: One thing we've been trying to clarify, are you still a U.S. citizen or how's how's that work?
0: (laughs) First of all, who wants to know that? And number two, the guy asking the question looks like the only exercise he ever got was jumping to conclusions.
1: Um, I've always been super outspoken in my gratitude to the US um, to the US team as well they have been nothing but supportive to me um, and so for that I'm forever grateful and same to the Chinese team they have you know been so so supportive of me and so in that sense I feel like sport is really a way that we can unite people it's something that It doesn't have to be related to nationality. It's not something that um, can be used to divide people. We're all out here together pushing the human limit.
0: Okay, I think she deflected well, but I liked her answer. It's like, why do you need to know this? But so the answer just wasn't good enough for some of the other media.
1: Uh, we understand that you, you're trying to unite people through sports, which is a, a great thing, but uh, uh, w- you were not clear about if you still add your American citizenship and uh, if you, you live in the U.S. or in China from now on. So I grew up spending 25 to 30 percent of every year in China. Um, I mean, as you guys all know now from me answering questions, um, I'm fluent in Mandarin and English. Um, I'm fluent culturally in both. I have family Um, Coming from Beijing, my mom grew up in Beijing, so um, I definitely feel as though I am just as American as I am Chinese. I'm American when I'm in the US and I'm Chinese when I'm in China. And I've been very outspoken about my gratitude to both the U.S. and China for making me the person who I am. That my mission is to use sport as a force for unity. To use it as um, a form to foster interconnection between countries. And not use it as a divisive force. So that benefits everyone. And if you disagree with that, then I feel like that's someone else's problem. Here's the thing. I'm not trying to keep anyone happy. I'm an 18-year-old girl out here living my best life. Like, I'm having a great time. You know, it doesn't really matter if other people are happy or not, because I feel as though I am doing my best, I'm enjoying the entire process, and I'm using my voice to create as much positive change as I can for the voices who will listen to me in an area that is personal and relevant to myself. So I know that I have a good heart, and I know that, um, my reasons for making the decisions I do are are based on a greater common interest and something that I feel like is for the greater good. And so if other people don't really believe that that's where I'm coming from, then that just reflects that they do not have the empathy to empathize with a good heart, perhaps because they don't share the same kind of morals that I do. And in that sense, I'm not gonna waste my time trying to placate people who are one, uneducated, and two, probably are never going to experience the kind of joy and gratitude and just love that I have the great fortune to experience on a daily basis. Um, so, yeah, if people don't believe me and if people don't like me, then that's their loss. They're never going to win the Olympics.
0: Boom! She drops the mic. You know, I, look, I agree with her. I mean, here is a young kid. She's got a foot in each country through different parents and has decided to compete for China. And look, with what is happening today, I think unity is a pretty cool thing, if you could pull it off. And sports and music and entertainment are the ways to bring people together. So I applaud her for what she said. And here's an 18-year-old kid talking like this. Man, she is way ahead of the game. And moving on to other sports, like I'm sad for Sean White, who was sitting in metal contention before his last half-pipe run. He did what he always does. He went for it. It worked in the last three Olympics where he, where he won a gold, and uh, his performance was perfect. He tried to do it again. It didn't work. But that's who he is. I personally think his failure to earn a medal brought him to the media in tears with tremendous gratitude to all his supporters. That soundbite will resonate for years. I think another medal would have been great for his numbers. You know, great, a four-time Olympic medal winner. But saying that you're a three-time medal winner and developing this new business called Whitespace, and who knows what else he's going to do. He has the humility to feel what it's like to lose it at the precipice when one little different move of his body could have changed everything as as for everybody else he's competing with. So his empathy has to be like off the charts. And so I think that's good for people. Failure, I think, is your greatest teacher in life. And so he's had incredible success He had one failure at his fourth Olympics and now he has a chance to parlay all of those experiences, if he chooses, to something even better. He brought the sport of snowboarding to the level that it's out today. I don't think he's done. And speaking of gratitude, (laughs) I was in Costco the other day and Tracy and I were at the self checkout line waiting for the next register to open when all of a sudden this guy walks in front of us with this bouquet of flowers I guess the fact that it was the day before Valentine day would suggest you know he he thought about it which is pretty good I mean for a guy to think about it the day before he's ahead of the game anyway he walks in ahead of us And maybe he didn't see us. But then as he walks ahead of us, Tracy and this guy make eye contact. And at that point, he knew he cut in line. And Tracy just says, please go ahead. You only have one item. And then he goes, okay, thank you. And walks to the register. Here's the thing. Tracy only had one item in her hand. It's what I call a polite standoff. That's when two people enter this precipice where only one could go forward at a time. Who's going to win the most polite game and under no circumstances will go first when offered that opportunity? And what does it say about each of those individuals? One is the most polite. The other is what I'll call the polite acquiescer. The person who acquiesces when they're they're put in the situation of how long can I say, no, you go, no, you go, no, you go. You know what I mean? It's like, okay, the acquiescer to me is somebody who is being polite, but also sees like, hey, if I do this forever, forever nobody's going forward. We're holding up the line. And what harm does it do? I've, I've already uh, secured my karma uh, so that the person that's letting me go forward is not going to curse me under their breath when I've actually cut in front of them. So I think, you know, you give yourself some karma when at least you approach it and you're both asking the other person to go forward. Now, what does it say about the polite standoff winner? I think they're banking up good karma to have it come back in spades in the future. I mean, that's not exactly how Tracy thinks. She's generally a kind, respectful, and polite person. She feels better letting someone proceed first in a polite standoff. It reminds me of a story that my son Matthew told me one time. He's out in California, just got out there, had just been living in Chicago for a while. So now he's dealing with the California laid back um, culture. And he's with a buddy and he's driving. He gets to, a, gets to a four-way stop sign and he gets there. He believes he gets there at the same time, maybe a second or so after the other person who is to his right. That it also um, is waiting in, to get into the intersection, and now he and this other person in the other car are looking at each other. They're eyeballing each other, and they're giving the hand signal like "you go." And then Matthew's with his buddy, and it's like become a joke. And Matthew's like, "No, I'm this guy's going to go. I'm not going." And Matthew gives this guy the sign. This guy gives it back. They're going back and forth. There's nobody behind either one of them, but like fifteen or twenty seconds has passed. And neither of them are going forward. They are testing the other one to see who is the most polite and who's the polite acquiescer. And neither of them go. All of a sudden, the guy in the other car puts his car in reverse and starts going backwards. Basically saying to Matthew, you're not going to win this battle. You're going first. How about that? Have you ever heard of that before? Just my observations would suggest that most people don't have the patience or social awareness to enter into any polite standoff. But I believe those that have the patience and have the social awareness somehow get rewarded in other ways. It's just one of those things that's hard to prove, but you just know it's true. I guess that's what faith's all about. Have you noticed that more companies are changing their corporate names these days? I remember when Kentucky Fried Chicken abbreviated their name to KFC. Rebranding is often used to update a company's name to reflect cultural changes in consumer behavior or values, or they're just trying to distance themselves from their sordid past. In regards to KFC, dropping the fried name as consumers increasingly looked for healthier choices made a lot of sense. They also brought a few other things on their menu, but I have to be, believe that fried chicken has got to be 90 to 95% of what they sell. The consulting company, Accenture, used to be part of the Anderson uh, Arthur Anderson Company. They were Anderson Consulting. But when Arthur Anderson, the parent company, was cited for obstruction of justice in the Enron case, The consulting arm had to establish a new identity without Arthur or Anderson in their name. After an internal competition, Kim Peterson, a Danish employee from the company's Oslo Norway office, offered up Accenture and won whatever prize they had to win. Facebook changed their name to Meta to signal the market of their future interest of developing technology to build the metaverse. And, you know, the name change timing was coincidental when Francis Hagan, the whistleblower from Facebook, went to Congress and uh, revealed that uh, Facebook was aware of some of their practices that had an effect on young girls and uh, was still implementing some of those practices. So um, maybe they were moving into the future. Maybe they were trying to escape the past. Maybe both are true. This leads me to my first story. The PGA's Phoenix Open, which was formerly the Waste Management Phoenix Open, now the WM Phoenix Open. I mean, the name change makes perfect sense to me. Solid Waste Disposal is a growing problem and it's a zero-sum game there's only so much undeveloped land in the united states was as which as we all know in 2022 is a shit more expensive than it's ever been there are also three major problems associated with landfills toxins leachate and greenhouse gases so the wm name change makes sense They're corporate mission statements about minimizing and even eliminating environmental impact. Those words are powerful, and that makes sense. Until somebody puts in a hole-in-one at the 16th hole at the stadium, then it's just hard to imagine that environmental impact is the biggest concern that everybody has for the day. When Sam Ryder stepped up to the 16th tee box on Saturday afternoon, surrounded by a four-story arena with 20,000 happy and loud fans, the announcers Colt Nost and Amanda Balionis weren't even paying attention. There's liquid coming down. There's beer going everywhere. We are covered in beer. As his ball hits the green, 20,000 fans start to raise the volume of their chants. And as the ball gets closer and closer to the hole, they're getting louder. When it goes in, the stadium erupts into a celebration that you will never see anywhere else. That's when Colt and Amanda looked up and they're like, holy shit. Most of the fans in the bleachers by the green were waiting outside the gates as early as 2.30 in the morning. So when the gates open at 6 a.m., it was like this foot race to get these general admission seats out to the stadium sands. I mean, that just gave them hours of celebration prep work. Now add to that, there are 300-plus luxury boxes in this stadium and outside balcony seating as well. It's packed with like-minded fans. It's funny, like when you miss the green, you get booed. Nowhere else in golf will you ever see... Professional golfers mix a green, miss a green, and fans boo them. It just doesn't happen. You're quiet. You don't say anything. They know they hit a bad shot. They're not feeling good about it. But here, you actually get booed. And I think a lot of the golfers smile. I mean, <laughs> what else can you do when you have you know part of 20,000 people booing you? That's why it's good to have the name Gooch because it sounds like boo. So when you make a bogey, you get booed. But when you make a birdie, and even some par saves, it's met with this rock and roll-like adjuration. So when Sam's ball rolls into the cup, the place erupts into this beer-throwing and champagne-like cork-flowing beverages exploding everywhere.
1: W.M. Phoenix Open.
0: This has to be a bucket list thing, right? What would you like to accomplish on the PGA Tour, a hole-in-one on Saturday? I mean, yeah, this is as good as it gets. <laughs> oh, here we go. It took the grounds crew and the volunteers upwards of 30 minutes to clean up the green in the surrounding area so the rest of the pros could play the hole. Despite the fact that the total purse for winning and making the cut for the weekend is... Less than the PGA average, I think the average is $9 million. This event was $8.2 million. Still not bad, but certainly not the average. The PGA players still want to play it. They love the event. And think about it. Most PGA pros have been show-offs their entire career. Some well before they went pro. When you're a good golfer and you know you're a good golfer and you're beating other people... You like other people to see it. You have something to prove. First of all, you need to be confident and you want to show other players and fans what you're capable of. We've heard sound bites from so many professional athletes, not just golfers, but any professional sports where are fans, how hollow it was last year when there are no fans. It was dead. It was almost like practice. For football, it was like going to a scrimmage. This 2022 season is humanity's coming out after a long hibernation, and people are hungry and apparently thirsty for a good party. Well, the WM Phoenix Open is that, and it's like a party started and great golf broke out. Just when you thought that hole in one on Saturday was going to be the play, Here comes Sunday and Carlos Ortiz follows up Sam's Hole-in-One and makes one of his own. Another eruption. More cans and bottles and champagne and everything tossed out onto the greens. Just as a side note, what was interesting to me is that both hole in ones were filmed but were not part of the live presentation. What I mean by that is You're following the golfers and someone is in the production booth, you know, basically saying, okay, we're going to go to this hole. We're going to go to this hole, whatever that is, and show a golfer that's leading the tournament or somebody that's doing something really well. And so you're following that. In both situations with a hole in one, they had to go back and show you something that happened outside of the course of their production. So from that standpoint, it would have been, I think, even better if you're following golfers. And let's say, you know, we're following Sam. And now Sam, gets, you don't know what's going to happen. And the announcers aren't going to tell you what's about to happen. So you're just like them. You're watching it for the first time. In both of the hole-in-ones, the announcers told you what you were about to see. So it took a little bit out of it. But still, it was it was some celebration. But there were certainly other stories besides those fantastic holes in one. The Heath Gala, the 54-hole leader, Pepper Dine graduate just two years ago, 24-year-old kid is the story of the weekend. He played 70 holes like a potential first-time champion. And the announcers couldn't say any more about what a great person he is. And that's kind of nice. If you don't know somebody, you know nothing about them. I mean, they could tell you his pedigree. They could tell you how he's won, college player of the year, you know, all of these things that basically make you think he deserves to be there. He's proven himself. But to give you a little background, because most other players that you've followed, you know a little bit more about because they've done interviews, uh, they've been followed by the media. So you kind of have a sense of who these people are. This guy, the golfing community knew who he was, but the fans, maybe not so much. So this guy's been playing really well. And he's a kid. He doesn't look like a kid. He's got a full beard and doesn't look like a kid. And, man, could he pound the ball? And he played 70 great holes. Unfortunately, he got to the last two holes, made big enough mistakes to fall back one stroke and not make the playoff at the end of his round. But, you know, I'm hoping this kid continues to do what he's doing. Because if he's as nice as everybody says he is, who doesn't want a nice champion? And while he's leading the tournament, there are also some really big-name players that are either with him or right behind him by a stroke or two. So I'm watching on Sunday, and it looks like Kepka is back at it again. Cantley is always like this guy has ice in his veins. And it was good to see Scotty Scheffler finally win, one, his first PGA Tour win. And I think he's made every cut this year. He's been top three in 10 events. He has been knocking at the door. And so it's fitting that he stays with it. He stays with it. He's one or two strokes behind. And he just keeps churning to the end. He gets in a playoff with Mr. Ice in his veins, Cantley. And he is a tough guy to shake. But Scotty finally did it. And Shoffley, you know the guy's got game and he knows how to play under pressure. So you're on the back nine and these guys are like a stroke away. So you know anything can happen. And as great as they are, you know they could hit that one shot, the eagle, the birdie, that just makes a difference. I mean all of them have proven themselves under pressure. So when Cantley attempts a birdie putt on 16, while his ball was seemingly heading to the correct path to the hole, it hits something on the green, which knocked it off course. And I'm certain if the PGA did a post-mortem or a video autopsy of all of the cans and bottles that the fans threw after uh, Ortiz's uh, Ortiz's hole-in-one, they probably find the culprit for that imperfection in the green where a can or a bottle hit that they didn't see. And I think that's where Cantley's ball went over because typically these greens in the PGA on some of these events, man, they are like pool tables. No imperfections. The only imperfections are things like pitch marks from balls and cleat marks. But those things are always tamped down when players walk off the green. So there's clearly... Something was on the green that knocked his ball off course. Now, I'm not suggesting by any means that the tournament director eliminate the raucous crowd celebrations. I think it's pretty cool to see. it is like a ticker tape parade in New York City. It is like you're in the bottom of the ninth inning, last batter up, and you hit a grand slam to win the series. That's kind of the emotion. So you don't want to take that out of it. I think that's great. I'm just suggesting that the WM management team come up with a sustainable solution that minimizes any greens damage. And I don't know what that is, but I'm sure they've talked about it after watching Sunday's match. Yeah. So sometimes when I watch events, I'll have my phone with me and I'll just check social media to see what people are talking about. And so I followed several social media posts and, and comments about the, the Phoenix Rock and Roll Golf Tournament. Now, I've seen a lot of golf traditionalists will compare this Roman Coliseum-like fan behavior at the Phoenix Open to like Augusta or the RNA tournaments in Great Britain. And they're appalled by the behavior. I was at the 17th green In 1999, on Sunday, for the 33rd Ryder Cup, played at the Country Club in Boston. If you remember, through the first two days of the Ryder Cup, the U.S. was down more than it ever had been before. No one's come back from a deficit like this. And on Sunday, in the 12 individual matches, they start coming back. They start coming back. The crowd starts getting into it. And on the 17th hole... Justin Leonard playing against uh, Jose Maria Alafa Ball, uh makes this 30 foot sliding putt to put the Americans ahead. And I'll tell you, people were throwing things and yelling and screaming. And I got to believe there were like two to maybe 3,000 people in that green area yelling and screaming. Now imagine. 20,000 fans that purposely situate themselves in a partially enclosed arena for the sole purpose of socializing, partying, and getting tanked, and watching guys making birdies, and hopefully, you're going to see a hole in one. Imagine that. You don't want to give that up. I think it's great for golf. I think it's great for pro golfers, and I clearly think... It's good for all of the charities that are supported by the W.M. Foundation. So traditionalists, if you don't like it, maybe you just don't watch it that weekend. Golf bets. Everybody likes winning golf bets. Nobody likes losing, but if you have to lose, what's the best way to lose a golf bet? I was playing golf the other day with a group, and this guy I'll call Ray had this epiphany. Ray introduced me to the Bourbon for Birdie celebration. It led me to always keep a flask of bourbon or moonshine in my golf bag just to celebrate great golf accomplishments. Ray was sharing this epiphany he had that had never crossed my mind about losing money on the golf course, losing golf bets. Sometimes we play in multiple groups and play a skins game. It doesn't have to be a skins game. Whatever betting game you play with multiple groups It's always best to get everybody's money up front. Then you have a total pot that you're going to divide up and pay out to the winners. So if you play a skins game and let's say only three holes, individuals scored lower than the other individuals and got three skins, you basically divide three into the total kitty and then you give the winners their portion. It's that simple. It's way more simple doing the math to figure out what each player earns for a skin than it actually is earning a skin. I mean, you think about it. You have 8 to 12 players all playing the same holes pretty much from the same tee boxes. And when you have 8 to 12 players playing the holes, it's very difficult to have one out of all of those players have the lowest score on any given hole. Most likely, you're going to have at least two people that have the lowest score, a tie. And when you have ties, nobody wins money. So it's pretty spectacular where you're playing against a large group of people and you score the lowest on a hole that nobody else could score that low on. So it's typically going to be the uh, the lowest handicap holes. You know, the first five most difficult holes are typically where somebody is more likely to earn a skin because it's difficult to get birdies and eagles on those holes. And whatever your game is, at the end of the round when all of the groups are in, you're typically going to have a commish, the commissioner, who's in charge of tallying up all the scorecards and looking to see if it's a skin game, what hole did one player score the lowest and nobody else matched them, okay? And so then he pays out the money or she pays out the money. Now here's Ray's observation. He said. I'd rather lose a golf bet, putting a kitty into a pot than to have to face the winning golfer and pay him directly. When you open your wallet and pay someone or multiple someone, sometimes you have to look them in the eyes and feel defeat for the second time. The first time is when you're coming off of 18, you already know how you did for the most part. You might not know if you want to skin, but you know if you played well or if you played poorly. And the worst thing is to come off of 18, you're shaking hands, and you just want to get to the clubhouse. So typically, if you're playing in a foursome, a lot of times they don't take your money up front. You wait till the end. I've heard this interesting uh, story about a lot of Korean golfers who apparently, whatever bets they're playing at the end of every hole, They pay their bets, whether it's on the green or it's on the next tee box. So when you get to 18, you're only paying for the 18th hole. And so it's money going back and forth and back and forth. I'm not sure it's a tradition. It's part of the culture. Don't know why, but that's what they do. What we do, if you're just playing in a foursome, is now you have to open your wallet at the end. And there's nothing worse, like I said, than you know you're defeated. You're coming off the 18th. You pretty much know how you did. That day, And if you didn't do well, now you got to get back to your cart. And the second part, now you got to grab your wallet and open it up and look at the players who won and hand them the money. So it's like, it must be like what a defensive safety would feel like when the other team scores on him and it's a questionable play and it's inside two minutes. So now the refs have to go back to instant replay. It goes back to New York. They have to look at it again. Meanwhile, you know you got beat. You know the other guy's feet were in bounce, So you feel badly about the other team scoring on you. Now you have to wait a few minutes, and then the ref goes out there, and he confirms the call. You feel bad again. Well, that's the same thing, like when you have to pay money coming off the 18th. It's like, I know I played badly, and now I've got to look you in the eye and pay you. So what Ray would say is, he'd rather just put his money in the pot in the beginning. Hey, and if he wins, great. But if he loses... He gets to go back to his car and drive away, and he doesn't have to face the people that won the money and watch them as he takes it out of his wallet and hands it to them. It also reminds him that, hey, maybe he just sucks at golf, or maybe he just had a bad day, or maybe the other guy had the day of his life. Still doesn't feel good. Money in the pot? That feels better. Even though this is a golf podcast, I'd be remiss in not talking about the 2022 Super Bowl at SoFi Stadium. This past week, I heard a lot of chatter about predictions for Super Bowl winners when I was sitting at the first tee. The most common statement was, my heart's for Cincinnati, but my head's for L.A., which means they were betting on L.A. The Bengals, led by Joe Money, who, by the way, did his best Joe Namath pregame dress impression on his way to the locker room. The Bengals deserved to be there. They might have been a four-and-a-half-point underdog, but they didn't play like it, and they didn't play like it until the last few minutes of the game. The Rams put their money on Matthew Stafford and Cooper Cup to generate enough points to win in Aaron Donald and Von Miller to keep the Bengals' offense off the field. Look, I don't want to oversimplify it. It was a great game. Both offenses and defenses and special teams made minimal mistakes. So really, it's about who's going to execute the best. And there was great execution on both sides. But Cooper Cup. The guy never ceased to amaze me the entire season through the playoffs and in the Super Bowl. I mean, first of all, it's a cool name to say, but yeah, he deserved it. He deserved the MVP. You know, it could have gone to Aaron Donald, could have gone to Matthew Stafford. Any of those would have been good choices. And Sean McVay, man, that guy is a genius. He knew the players to put together to get the team that he wanted to get, and he knew how to coach him up. So, yeah, I'm happy for him as well. When I watch a Super Bowl, I happen to like to watch everything about it. It's probably the only event that the fact that I still have it recorded on my DVR, I'm not going to fast forward. I'm not going to fast forward through the commercials, through halftime, like I do for most other games. Because I want to see the event event in its entirety. So I want to see how they started out. I want to see who sings the national anthem. She killed it, by the way. I want to see the halftime show, and I want to see the commercials. The commercials were okay. And maybe it's just generally, I don't like commercials, so I want to see who's going to entertain me. What commercial is going to be the most entertaining? Quite frankly, I can't pull one out of all of them that I say is a standout. But They were entertained. It was worth me sitting down and watching commercials, which is something I despise. And do you notice if you get Hulu, I don't know if this is just me, but if you're getting Hulu and you're not paying for the super premium to get the commercials, when it goes to commercial, the volume like doubles. Like if you're in the room and you start to step out of the room and all of a sudden a commercial comes on, you have to run back in the room because somebody three houses down from you can hear your TV. It's that loud. But anyway, I digress. So commercials, pretty good, funny, okay. Halftime show. If you like hip hop and if you like R&B, then you like the show. And I did. I like Snoop. I think he's great. And I, Dr. Dre was great. He, he could still play piano. And when Eminem started singing, I'm like, I love that song. It's great. Now, I didn't get the whole kneeling thing. When he kneeled down, I didn't take that as a representation of like when players are kneeling for social justice. I didn't see it. And I guess he was asked not to do it, and he did it anyway. So now it's going to give people in the media something to talk about. But it was a good show. When I think of the last several years, like shows that made an impact to me, I like the 2020 show with Shakira and J-Lo. It's like, wasn't it enough just to watch the Chiefs and the 49ers compete with each other for best team on the field? So, no, we got to witness two hot female performers compete with each other for most hip thrusts, most hair swinging and coordinated dance ensembles. And J-Lo and Ben Affleck back together again? I must be living under a rock. The truth is, I really don't care about any celebrity relationships. Most of them are ephemeral. I mean, it's hard enough for people. I think it's hard enough for two people out of the sights of the media to continue to work together in a relationship, particularly when kids and family is involved. Now add the element of... Wanting and needing approval from strangers, conflicting work and travel schedules, and an abundance of adoration from attractive people that just haven't experienced the more difficult challenges of life with you. And bingo, the grass just looks greener somewhere else. And when you have more money than you could spend, there's just less hesitation to sit in discomfort and work it out. I mean, could you imagine having to deal with the, a breakup with somebody? That's tough enough. But now you got the media hounding you to get a pick or a soundbite. And they're not just you know, trying to catch you in the act of living. They are trying to incite something so that they can get an incredible soundbite or some really good video. Anyway, I got off the track there. So yeah, it was a great Super Bowl, as were all of the playoff games leading up to it. It just confirms that I'm a big fan of guys that leave everything on the field. Aaron Donald, Cooper Cup, those guys leave it on the field. You've been listening to an episode from Tales from the First Tee. I'm your host, Rich Easton, telling tales from beautiful Charleston, South Carolina. Talk to you soon.